Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me on this last Sunday of the month with a special presentation. We are coming out today and spending a little time with debutantes. We are going to meet many of these white-gowned and white-gloved beauties on both sides of the pond in the coming months, and I thought it might be fun, helpful, cool, interesting for our investigation to give a little bit of insight into this long-held tradition, highly guided by rules and only invited into by association. It is a fertile playground of high society hijinks for centuries. Tis the damn season, friends. It's time for debutantes. Before we begin, I do have some thanks to give to our newest supporters over at the Done and Done Patreon community, the most amazing group over there, getting ad-free and early episodes, along with weekly not-done-yet bonus episodes, Thank you so, so much to Rory W., Rihanna J., and Rachel C. for your support. Thanks to all y'all for your kind reviews, for your nice emails, and for coming back to listen. We will be back this Saturday, first Saturday of the month, with a whole new series for December, where we will be meeting a legendary debutante from across the pond with a storied history all her own. Until then, please enjoy this little white-gloved primer on debutantes. What is it to Deb? What's the history of the tradition? How did it become? Who were some of the most famous ones? Let's investigate. Tis the damn season, at least for us to talk about debutantes. Although the season, traditionally for Debs, is more like spring to summer, at least in its origin. But like all traditions, the framework makes some shifts through time, from the sacred to the profane and all the way back again. The debbing process, with its styling, its rules, and its customs, does change through time, but its mission the reason for the season, so to speak, always remains the same. The debutante process, if we're breaking it down to the lowest common denominator here, it's the process of presenting eligible young women into high society and therefore flipping the switch for being considered on the market to make a good marriage. There's way more to it than that, much more complexity, but long story short, Upper-crust families will always find a way to advantage themselves and throughout all the winds of all the times. Much of the power plays have centered around the marriage viability of young women to other powerful families, all with the same idea of uniting themselves with other powerful families. 
It is a tale as old as time, right? Debutantes, the famous and the infamous, will come into play with so much of our done-and-done storyline. Our man Nick has been to a lot of debutante balls himself, but is also writing about a lot of ladies who have been through the system, both in his day and long before. Dunn also writes as well about a lot of men who have escorted these ladies in and out of many a ballroom. This ritual, elitist as it may be, has defined the marriage market in much of world history and will continue to do so with the system still in place, although not necessarily royally sanctioned at this point. That ends in 1958, but we'll get there. So many players, along with their power and their privilege, that play in the world we are working in throughout the centuries within our done-and-done universe. Many of our cast of characters, both men and women, young and old, have been players in the debutante system for centuries now. The whole system has been a long-held ritual, beginning its formal framework in 1780, but to truly understand it all, we have to back up our carriage a little bit more into previous history. Humans from the beginning of time have been forming communities and making alliances. It's the foundation of history, how alliances are made, how they work when they're working, and the aftermath, if there is one, when they break. The debbing part of this here, at least as it evolves, is quite a proper way to engineer part of this process. But again, to be fair, as a ritual, putting your daughters out for marriage alliances whether political or economic, families benefit. I'm going to back it up to at least Henry VIII here and give Mr. Defender of the Faith and six-time husband with two beheadings a little bit of the credit. Henry VIII begins the real split with Catholicism in his time. Henry wants a divorce from Catherine of Aragon to marry Anne Boleyn, He'll just massage the rules of Catholicism a little bit, dissolve the monasteries, kind of wreck the social structure, which by the time we get to the 17th century, with the Reformation and the Restoration, Protestants now have a problem. It used to be unmarried ladies and upper crust families, if not married, would just scoot on off to the convent. But alas, thanks to Henry VIII and all of the Protestant Reformation that follows, no more convents. There's no more hiding out young girls. Protestants have unmarried daughters too. Remember in the system of primogeniture, women cannot inherit. Only firstborn males do. So many families, so many women are super reliant on making a good marriage to continue everything. The tradition remains. Slowly at court and then throughout the decades, it was always great when the king had a queen to ensure ladies-in-waiting women at the court were mixing into the marriage market, accounting for the men who were at the court with the king. And over time, eligible gals were always getting presented in one way or another. But by 1780, it becomes a real thing, a formal process. Or is it just the formalizing of something over time 
that all begins with a public relations move. The year is 1780 and unmarried Protestant daughters abound. But if we're going to look a little bit closer, like so many things monarchies do over time, we are talking about PR. How do we control the narrative? See, King George III and his wife, Queen Charlotte, are returning to London after the hunting season, and they will hold a May Day ball. The reason for the ball, naturally, is Charlotte's birthday. They are looking at aligning this particular Queen Charlotte's birthday ball as a fundraiser to raise money for a new hospital for pregnant women. That's the story, recorded through time. But again, backing up the carriage, this is really a PR move on behalf of the monarchy. King George and Queen Charlotte have come under a little heat for their extravagance. They maybe are looking around to control some of the bad press about them. And admittedly, as king and queen, they do sponsor and provide generous donations to plenty of places but it was largely unnoticed up to that point. So it is under the guise of Queen Charlotte's birthday that the check that George and Charlotte had written for the hospital for pregnant women that they would have just given to the hospital and it would have gone unnoticed becomes an affair. This fundraiser is a way to establish a little good PR. Sure, we're going to celebrate Charlotte's birthday at the same time and Welcome to how a tradition is born. What a way in this restructured court if you are in the upper crust of all the folks. This is incredible to have access to the monarchy through presenting your available daughter. And there's a whole season wrapped around a thing that we have done for centuries anyway. But now it has some formality. Sure, the king and queen can look great for doing some fundraising. Important families titled aristocrats can also present their daughters and make them available. Court life here becomes more public. And to make your debut at court with a presentation to Queen Charlotte in her drawing room? This happens first. It's a little bit less formal than the big grand ballroom. But the drawing room celebration to the queen is where it's at. You got to get through that first. Originally in 1780, our debutantes are wearing colors. No white gown and gloves yet. Gals are looking to find the most complementary colors for their hair, their complexion. The process is not cheap, though, with all the gowns and all the balls. It was said at the time that it is better to deb late than before your family had the money to do it right. And this process isn't only happening in England. There's a little bit of culture clash here. Once the process is instigated over with the king and queen and has a little bit more formality around it, you see it transferring over to North America. Now we have cotillions, we have presentations. The first debutante ball within the United States dates back to 1817. This is the Christmas cotillion in Savannah, Georgia. Again, all the color, all the fashion, all the family, all the power, all the high society hijinks. 
Hoop skirts, believe it or not, are going to remain the fashion until the 1820s. Empire gowns will then come into fashion. You do see the cuts, the styles of debutantes through time and what they're wearing change as the time changes as well. By the time that King George IV comes around, changes are being made here, but they're slight in fashion, in headdress. Here the three Prince of Wales feathers become a thing. Girls attach three very long white feathers to their headgear. They have to be big enough for the queen to see. White dresses also take over here, but it is all formal wear, no doubt. And not only are these girls making connections in society, as well as their parents too, but there's a whole cast of eligible gentlemen that have a structure around their particular part as well. By the 1840s, the name debutante to debut from the French had struck and landed. The French debut here, first performance or showing to begin. Again, adaptations through time. At this point, long trains on the gown are added. However, they can only be presented on the floor in that initial drawing room presentation. Otherwise, the trains of your gown are lifted up and carried on your arm. Perhaps you have a fan. Don't forget about the Prince of Wales feathers. There's a lot going on. Because it's not just this May Day Queen Charlotte's Ball. That's just the kickoff. There are house parties, numerous balls, both given and attended. The races at Ascot will come in. There are numerous things in and out of time that glob onto the structure of what is the debutante season. It's more than just a night. It is a whole season. It is a huge deal to get your daughter presented at court. And how exactly does that happen? To get admission into the party, parents apply to the Lord Chamberlain for their girl to receive an invitation. This is based naturally upon the girl's character, the family standing, the amount of money they have. Once the process begins with those eligible criteria met, if you were a girl who had already previously been presented to the monarch, you could nominate another girl. This is going to keep the circle pretty tight within upper classes and the peerage. Again, this ball, the Queen Charlotte's ball, is only the kickoff of the social calendar. The season will follow from May through the next six months of dances, parties, other coordinated events. It is costly. It is time-consuming. It is soul-consuming on some levels as well. It is a whole season, and... The process, like all processes, really does change through time. What started in the court of Queen Charlotte will naturally take on popularity within the United Kingdom. It will also become popular across the pond. It is a big deal to get your American daughter a presentation into the English court. From the Gilded Age on, you have all these newfound industrialists with a lot of nouveau riche money 
and they want to buy a stamp of approval, all going back to our Knickerbocker Gilded Age Society shift we talked about within the Vanderbilt series. We have a few famous American debutantes within the system, and we owe much of this legend to Jenny Jerome. Jenny Jerome is an American girl who was presented at court, marrying Randolph Churchill in 1874, becoming Lady Churchill. Randolph was the third son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough. Bringing us into a story that you may remember, let's visit again a little bit with Alva Vanderbilt. We talked about her many episodes ago within the Vanderbilt series. Alva's best friend was Consuelo Isnaga, who will marry Viscount Mandeville with a $6 million dowry. Viscount Mandeville is George Montague, who will become the 8th Duke of Manchester. Anyway, with the friendship of Alva and Consuelo, Consuelo agrees to come to Alva's big 1883 ball, which is going to give Alva a pretty big step up in society, having a titled lady from across the pond in attendance at her big ball. Now, not too long after this, Alva divorces. She divorces her Vanderbilt husband, which should have led to a scandal in 1895. But alas, Alva, <laughs> mama like no other, is getting her daughter, Consuelo Vanderbilt, named after her best friend, Consuelo Isnaga. Mama on a mission has plans for her kid, Consuelo. Those plans include hitching her up to Charles Spencer Churchill, the grandson of who will be the ninth Duke of Marlborough with Consuelo Vanderbilt becoming the Duchess of Marlborough. Two different dukes in play here, but getting presented at court gives you something extra. New money families can buy their girls a way in, through connections or cash. Consuelo's marriage and her time as a duchess will not last. She will remarry again after that first marriage to the Duke of Marlborough goes south. Consuelo's second husband is Jack Balsan, a French balloon aircraft and hydroplane pilot. It is Consuelo, under this married name, Consuelo Vanderbilt Balsan, that she will write her legendary book from 1953 called The Glitter and the Gold. Consuelo's book explores the stressful, exhausting, and often sometimes exhilarating life of a debutante. So with this influx of moneyed American families, a little too nouveau in their rich for the staid and cemented society back in the States, here these new money Americans have a real opportunity. The flip side of this opportunity coin, you have down on their luck dukes and duchesses back in merry old England. Tax rates are enormous and grand estates don't repair themselves, and the aristocratic lifestyle can cost a pretty penny. Here's a real chance to cash in, because these folks, over the history of time, have been presented into the system. They have the connections needed. They have the golden ticket to make recommendations for American girls to get in the system for a price. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing that happens here 
up to World War One, which war, like it does, changes everything. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. From World War I to 1958, we're sort of looking at the last great heyday of the debutantes, at least formally at the court. But by this time, the phenomenon has completely transferred over to the United States as well. Now, naturally, there is no monarchy, but that will not stop high society in many, many cities formalizing their own process for debuting eligible young women into their particular high society community set. Some cities are a little more posh than others, but this is all very upper crust. This is naturally taking place in white communities, but the debutante process also takes shape as a custom in black communities as well. The first recorded debutante ball, known as Ethiopian Balls, were held back in 1778 in New York. The aim of this Ethiopian ball introduces the wives of free black men serving in the Royal Ethiopian Regiment. This group of women is able to mingle with the wives of British soldiers. The tradition will evolve. I have a great piece of history here. This is from Kimmy Tubra on whereyouat.com about the formalization about 100 years later of the process down in New Orleans. Debutantes happening in white communities. How do we involve this process? There seems to be a little disparity. Quote, this was instantly noticed by a young man named Wiley Knight when he arrived in New Orleans in 1894. Wiley, originally from Tennessee, was working as a Pullman porter in Chicago when he was offered a position on a Louisiana railroad in New Orleans. At the time, New Orleans had a rather notable population of middle-class blacks that had acquired wealth and status. Yet, to Wiley's surprise, there were no carnival balls created for the blacks that represented their high-society lifestyle. With this in mind, Wiley opened a dancing room in uptown New Orleans, just a few blocks from his residence. His career as a Pullman porter was one that was on the rise, becoming a desired job to have in the black community. 
This job allowed Wiley and his friends to advance in society and afforded them to attain many things. Early into the next year, 1895, their first ball was held at the Globe Hall, a prominent and historic ballroom. The ball was such a success that Wiley and his crew of porter friends and maids decided to name their group the Illinois Club. The club was eventually renamed the original Illinois Club, representing the state where most of the group's members were from. That ball became the first official black debutante ball. The original Illinois Club initiated a lineage of black excellence that would go on to be replicated not only in New Orleans, but across the country. During the following decades, while mostly prominent in the South, these black debutante balls were being held from Harlem, New York, to Los Angeles, California. Friends from Britain to the colonies to the developing United States, coming out is a big deal, whenever you do it and wherever you do it. Naturally, World War I will change the system a bit, there's a war going on, but the, but the debutante tradition, as it connects to the monarchy, will continue formally in England from World War I throughout World War II, again up to 1958 when it restructures a bit. We're not quite to that point yet. I do have a few more dishy spiderwebs to reveal. There are a few famous debutantes that I simply had to include in this episode. Eleanor Roosevelt, future first lady, does make her debut at the White House alongside her more glamorous cousin, Alice Roosevelt, daughter of then-President Theodore Roosevelt. Young Eleanor is not a fan of the process, but her cousin Alice is quite a legend. Alice Roosevelt has a pet snake named Emily Spinach. Emily Spinach, though, not invited to the ball, but that makes not one bit of difference for Jessica Mitford, one of the famous Mitford sisters. Jessica will let loose her pet rat out at dances all the time if the dance was getting a little too boring. Snakes and rats, and those aren't even the escorts. Barbara Woolworth, married Barbara Woolworth Hutton, will make her debut in 1930 to tremendous scandal. Barbara was dubbed the poor little rich girl, and her debut was held at the Ritz hosting such luminous families like the Vanderbilts, the Whitneys, the Astors, and the Rockefellers. Barber's Ball, of course, was announcing that Barbara was on the market, but it was also a way to show off her tremendous wealth. But in 1930, coming right after the stock market crash, her debutante ball is not perceived very well by a lot of the folks in the country who were really struggling. The cost estimation for this does differ. I'm going to go here with about $80,000 as an estimate cost for her party, and that is in those dollars. We're looking at right under $1.5 million for this party today with conversion rates. It was only the best for Barbara and her party, but honestly, it caused so much scandal that the poor little rich girl had to leave the country to escape all of the bad press she was getting. Barbara Woolworth's frenemy, Doris Duke, will have her coming out party not too long after, but this one is done at the family home in Newport, Rhode Island. This home is Rough Point. It is right at the southernmost end of the most famous and fancy street in Newport. The street is Bellevue Avenue. Doris Duke a bit more understated. 
Deborah Frazier, in the year 1938 here stateside, causes quite a stir with her coming out party. One of the most famous American debutantes of all time, but I want to head across the pond to spend just a few minutes within 1938 and 1939 here. The debutante of the season for each of these years might surprise you. In 1938, the debutante of the year at the English court is Kathleen Kennedy, known as Kick. Kick takes the Brits by storm. Both Kick and her sister Rosemary are presented at court that year. I have an excerpt here that details this scene from a lecture at the JFK Library. Will Swift is the guest on a Q&A about the Kennedy family's time in London. Will Swift is being interviewed by Fred Tice, who asks, One of the things that's really wonderful in this book is that it's not just about Joe Kennedy, it's about the Kennedys, the entire family over there, and obviously they had different experiences. The children in particular, the three eldest children, Jack, Kick, and Joe Kennedy Jr., are accepted into the highest levels of British society, were embraced into it. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about their experience. That's the setup. Will Swift answers. Sure. First of all, before the Kennedys went to London, the word went out in British aristocratic and social circles. These are friends of Roosevelt. This would be Franklin Delano at this time, no longer Theodore. Back to Will Swift. This family, and particularly Joe Kennedy, represent our chances for Anglo-American unity as we face the trials that are coming our way from Europe, and particularly from Germany. And so, welcome this family with totally open arms in every circle. And interestingly enough, at this time, the British were a little bored with King George VI and Queen Elizabeth and their two daughters, because they had been used to Edward VII who was quite spicy and charismatic. When they started to see pictures in the paper of the Kennedy family with their wonderful smiles and their charm and their handsome faces, they fell in love with the Kennedys, who took London by storm. Among the four oldest kids, Kathleen, who was known as Kick, and I love that nickname for her because it really captures her, had such an ebullient spirit. She got a kick out of everything. Kit came over early with some of her younger siblings. Joe Jr. and Jack, the two eldest, were still at Harvard. So they didn't come over until classes ended at the end of June. Their father returned to the U.S. and brought them back. But Kit came over with Eunice and Rosemary in the spring of 1938, just in time for the arcane ritual of the London season, which was really quite extraordinary. Kit had this ability— And it's too bad that Joe didn't have a little bit more of what she had. To take the British to the edge of impropriety and get away with it and make them laugh. She transmitted this wonderful, fresh American energy without offending them. For instance, she used to call the Duke of Marlborough Dookie Woogie. And he was a very stiff character, but somehow she charmed him. Kick and Rosemary were the first to come out in society, and they were presented at court. Presentation at court was a very strange ritual, where you had to curtsy and slide. It was very complicated. There is a story from Lawrence Lemer's book on the Kennedy women, based on an interview with the member in the palace staff, that Rosemary tripped when she was being presented to the king and queen. 
but she caught herself just in time so that she did not fall. You can imagine Rose Kennedy sitting there watching her daughters and how she must have felt. She had taken a real chance presenting Rosemary, who was mildly mentally retarded at court. But it was unfortunate for Rosemary that her younger sister Kick was the star of London society. In fact, she was voted in 1938 as the most exciting debutante of that year. They had coming out parties with many aristocratic and political figures in attendance. And then finally, Jack and Joe Jr. came over. There's an interesting story about them. Jack and Joe were very good friends, but they were also very competitive. Not surprising to people who know about the Kennedy family, and the night before they came over, Joe Jr. had wangled a date with Katherine Hepburn. Goodness, there's more to it, but I wanted to get in. Kit Kennedy, famous American debutante over in the court in 38. But that moves us to 1939. World War II is looming, and this particular year is sort of what they call the last hurrah of the debutante years. There was a ball this year held at the Holland House. The Holland House Ball was a big deal. Holland House was built in 1605 in the early Jacobean style. Holland House will soon be destroyed in the Blitz. But if there was ever a party to remember, it was this one. This particular ball is known as the last of the grand and great balls, with over 1,000 guests, including both the king and queen, but also Noel Coward, too. The most exciting debutante of this year, Rosalind Cubitt, the mother of Camilla, queen consort to King Charles III. Rosalind, making her debut that year, was the granddaughter of Alice Keppel, the very famous longtime mistress of King Edward VII. Most of the gardens and the 500 acres of Holland House are now the rural borough of Kensington and Chelsea. Again, within this particular time period, after World War I to 1958, there's a set of Debs that go through the system. There's a wonderful documentary that I watched with many women and men recalling their experience through this time. And I'd really be remiss if I didn't mention some of the best bits from their recollections. Apparently, by the time we move into the 30s, the 40s, there's a new language. They have acronyms for things. A few here. NSIT, not safe in Texas. This is the code for don't be left alone with that guy, no matter what you do. Maybe you were a guy called an MTF. If that was your reputation, MTF meant must touch flesh. The girls know the guys that are traipsing through this system. One recalled that the men wore gloves too, which is nice because their extravagant ball gowns did not get stained by their dirty hands on the back of their gowns from dancing. Apparently during this time, there is a new circle dance sort of that takes craze. It's called the Big Apple. Men and women are gathered around in a circle, although there's still waltzing and stuff that happens. Dancing shifts here a little bit. And again, not just the presentation at the court, there are dances every night, parties every evening. These women in their older age describe going through the process much younger, and they all say, of course, their moms came. Their moms came and they sat on chairs 
and watched everything going down and sat with all the other moms and they all gossip because all the other moms have been friends or frenemies or enemies, right, for decades before they presented their girls. The moms came out with these girls they're sitting on the benches with at their daughter's parties. Occasionally, fathers' husbands would show up. All the women would chatter because those are all their boyfriends, right, from 50 years ago. But you had to have a chaperone, and typically your mom was one. One of the women recalls, we thought they were as old as God's governess, but they were so young. I mean, these are women with teenage kids. They're not that old, but isn't that a fun saying? As old as God's governess. Debs at this point were under pain of death not to go to a nightclub. Going out to a nightclub, way more naughty and way more fun, so a lot of girls snuck out after the initial parties were done for the evening. Mom at this point has maybe attended quite a few balls that night, and she just wants to go upstairs and go to bed because the whole thing starts over again tomorrow. There was many a gal sneaking out, meeting a date down the street to go visit a late-night club. It is in 1958 with the modernization of the monarchy. Again, public relations move here, primarily driven by Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth II, that does away with the formal evening ball and presentation at court. It is announced in 1957, the year before, that the following year will be the last of this type of debutante system. We'll no longer look like this on this level, at least sanctioned by the monarchy. Again, a pretty nifty PR move. Here, the royal family can take off some financial pressure. And sure, maybe young women are gaining more in their own power too. The feminist movement is beginning, and maybe it's not so cool in a post-World War system to force girls to be ready to marry at such a young and tender age. Young women are now working, they're going to school. Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth II feel like the old system perhaps needed a bit of updating. Prince Philip calls the whole thing bloody daft. Additionally, it's expensive and it's time-consuming for the royal family. There are so many girls being presented at court in this way. In 1939 alone, there were five sessions that had to be held at court. Ain't nobody got time for that. But hey, at least the king and queen show up. The monarch before them, Edward VIII, literally left in the middle of one of these presentations to go out with Wallace Simpson instead. He just got up and walked out. This year, 1958, the last of the balls naturally was the one with the most applications ever to the Lord Chamberlain. Over 1,400 girls will make one last curtsy to Queen Elizabeth II and that giant cake too. Princess Margaret, sister of the Queen, infamous as she is, will remark in her own particular way about the changing of the system. They are letting every tart in London in. For a multitude of reasons, PR or not, it is see a Buckingham Palace. But hey, a new tradition evolves here with the royal family. Girls are still presented, it just happens in a little bit different of a way. The party was moved to Windsor Castle in the afternoon, going to a daytime venue. It can accommodate more girls and more mothers. It's way more cost-effective, 
and can all be handled in one afternoon, weather providing. Of course, the debutante tradition remains in England and the United States, with all kinds of other countries worldwide taking up the process to make white gowns and white gloves a thing across social organizations and country clubs everywhere. Holy cats, I think that is as much as I can pack in to this particular episode. Thank you so, so much for spending your time with me today. We're going to be back next Saturday with an infamous debutante, and it wasn't even her debutante time that made her so infamous. I'm so thrilled to bring you that story countdown on. In the meantime, if you're looking for a little bit of extra stuff, you can check out patreon.com slash done and done for, I think, over 20 bonus episodes now that all pertain into our investigation. One more time, friends. Thanks for coming on the investigation. Just for being here and being you. So thankful and grateful for you all. Until we meet again next weekend, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.